Let's prepare now for the ministry of God's Word. Please open in your Bibles to John 17. As you find that, please stand. We'll do so to give reverence to God's written and inspired Word. This evening, that word comes to us from John 17, verses 1 through 5, as we consider what it means to know and to be known. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your word. It is life-giving. It leads us out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. And so we pray, even as we sung, that you might be pleased, O Lord, to speak to us now through the reading and especially the preaching of your own word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. The second youngest winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, was a man named Albert Camus, a French philosopher, prolific writer who won this prize at age uh, 44, who wrote a variety of things, and in the midst of them, uh, wrestled with the question of what is the meaning of life? In many ways, that is the question of our sermon this evening. What is life, and is there meaning to be found in it? Camus argued, as many uh, have embraced, that humans should not succumb to the impulse of trying to find any meaning in life, as though any meaning uh, would ultimately be found. In fact, the hope of such is inherently a false promise. So what did Camus argue that we should do instead? That one must ultimately accept the absurdity of this world and lack of meaning found in it, and that this is the fundamental way that we ought to look at life. He wrote that uh, in the era of the 50s, and it was embodied in a point of view that we refer to sometimes as nihilism. Don't worry, this is not going to be a philosophy lecture. But nihilism is something that you find in every other song. And it's basically that same philosophy of Camus that suggests that nothing matters. And so I'll illustrate that by way of two songs. Uh, one from the early 1990s, the band Metallica. Uh, one of the arguably uh, best secular bands ever in history. There's a little bit of bias there. But there's both a musical and a literary genius to be found in their words. And in their song, Nothing Else Matters, the philosophy is expressed this way. So close, no matter how far, couldn't be much more from the heart, forever trusting who we are and nothing else matters. Never open myself this way. Life is ours. We'll live it our way. All these words I don't just say because nothing else matters. Trust I seek and I find in you. Every day for us something new. An open mind for a different view. Yet nothing else matters. And then the refrain. Never cared for what they do. 
never cared for what they know, but I know that nothing else matters. So that's a song from the 90s, which dates the preacher and maybe thinks, did they even have music back in the age of the dinosaurs? But in this very year, a very popular author, Billie Eilish, that maybe those of you that know Metallica may not be familiar with her, she puts it this way in a song called, What Was I Made For? The same question Camus wrestled with. And just a few lines from that song, I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but now I'm not so sure. What was I made for? What was I made for? So here's the point. Not just philosophers, but musicians, the old and the young, all wrestle with this question, what was I made for? What is our purpose? Is there any meaning to this life? In many ways, we find a wonderful answer to those questions here in John 17, and what is referred to as uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus here in John 17. And we're going to work our way through the text, thinking about what it means to know and to be known as the answer to those questions. We read earlier from the Shorter Catechism. The Catechism points us to the living and true God, and then it identifies the personhood of that uh, God, which is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in many ways, that's who and what we learn about in John 17. One God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that the real answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, is found, as Jesus puts it, in knowing this one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 17 comes to us in the context of Jesus' eminent departure. This chapter is also a backdrop against what is referred to as his farewell address. Jesus is about to leave. He knows it, and his disciples do not. As one commentary uh, points out, it would have been tremendously impactful for these disciples to begin hearing that Jesus is about to leave. They had left everything they had to go and follow Jesus, and now Jesus says, I'm about to leave. Their world would immediately be turned upside down. And so Jesus, on the backside of giving this farewell address, lifts up then uh, the language of this beautiful prayer, which uh, in many ways uh, goes along with, side by side with what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But you notice you don't have an account of that prayer in the book of John. You have rather this beautiful prayer here in John 17. So book ended between his farewell address and then uh, his imminent betrayal is this beautiful prayer. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He knows that his time is at hand. He knows that soon his disciples will forsake him. His people will incriminate him. And the very leaders of Israel will kill him. In the midst of this, he responds, as all of God's people ought to do in time of crisis, with prayer. Knowing that he is about to depart, he teaches his disciples how to pray. And notice how pastoral his intentions are here. Uh, he has been teaching them in the last few chapters that not only is he going to go, but when he goes, something good will happen. Roses out of the ashes. And not only will something good happen, what is about to happen will lead to what is better, which would be confusing for the disciples, for what could be better than for Jesus to be physically with them. Well, what is it that Jesus says that is better? The better is the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit that will guide them into all the truth of God's word, the Holy Spirit that will comfort them that they belong to God and can never be taken, the Holy Spirit that will teach them not only all the things that Jesus did, but even the way that they themselves are to go. So in the four, or excuse me, the three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, as Jesus knows that he's about to leave, he teaches them about the Holy Spirit. But here in John 17, as he teaches them to pray, how appropriate that he should teach them about their relationship to the Father. In many ways, the center point of prayer. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been portrayed, uh, portrayed, forgive me, portrayed, in many ways, as a final Moses. He is the Redeemer who has come to save the people of Israel. He is like Moses, but he is better than Moses. So it's not surprising that there are significant parallels between the work of Moses and the work of Jesus, and we won't review them all. But at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, nearing the end of Moses' life, uh, there are two canticles, or if you will, uh, two songs. One that turns the attention of the people of God up to the heavens, and another that teaches them regarding future things. And then Moses dies. Jesus is here doing something very similar. In the last few chapters, he has been teaching them regarding future things, and now he points their faith to heaven. The one who has come down is now about to return, and though he must depart, not only is he sure of his own future, he is sure of his disciples' own future, and therefore he points them to their heavenly hope. He taught them about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he himself had overcome the world, the end of the previous chapter. And now he leads them in the presence of his Father, the living and true God. How does Jesus begin this prayer? Notice what he does. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the farewell discourse that culminates with him saying climactically, I've overcome the world. When he had spoken these words, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Our guest preacher this morning pointed out uh, how enthusiastic John Calvin was about some of the different ways that the body might be used in worship, even at times uh, almost uh, without realizing it, uh, to shout out loud, amen, in reaction to something that God has done when his word is preached. Here, you see the posture of Jesus as he prays, and you see him sometimes knelt down in prayer, but not here. Here, appropriately, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. Like the psalmist, Jesus finds his hope in the, help, in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There's only one other time in the Gospel of John that Jesus lifts up his eyes in prayer. Do you know what it is? It's when he turns to the Father, asking that Lazarus would come back from the dead. How appropriate it is here, then, that in the face of his own death, once more does he lift up his eyes toward heaven, praying to the Father in heaven who has the power to raise from the dead, praying to the Father in heaven who has the ability to grant eternal life, teaching his disciples to pray, looking up to heaven, looking away from the things of this world, and as it were, into the eyes of our Father who is in heaven. And what is it that he begins to pray for? The content of this prayer is very unique and very important. What Jesus begins to pray for is not simply his own glory, but the mutual glorification of the Son alongside the Father. This too is very important. Jesus on the one hand acknowledging his proper place 
beside the Father in heaven, the proper act that the Son should be glorified. But even as the Son is appropriately glorified, it's not apart from the Father, but it's alongside and with the Father. It's a very bold prayer. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That hour has come. If there was a a wide-angle lens on the ministry of Jesus, the day of his coming, now time has become very focused and laser-like. The hour has come. Jesus soon is about to be crucified, and he knows not only that it will happen, he knows why it will happen. He has been or will be mistried. He will be crucified as a covenant breaker for making himself equal with God. Just as we saw in John 8, when he claimed to be equal with Jehovah and said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Jesus knows that soon they will have their way. They will treat him as a blasphemer, one who equated himself with God. And if you think about it, if Jesus were not God, then justice was truly served by those who doubted him if he were not God. And yet, if he was God in the flesh, justice will truly be served to those who doubted him and to those who doubt. The hour has come that will answer all questions regarding Jesus, his person, and his work. Was Jesus really sent by the Father? A question that was asked many times. Was Jesus really and truly God in the flesh? A subject that came up over and over What is clear is that for Jesus, the hour has come. And for him, this is the hour that will not only reveal truly who he is, but will also reveal his relationship to the Father. He will return to the Father. In just a little bit of time, imagine it this way, no longer will Jesus have to lift up his eyes to his Father in heaven. For the hour has come when he will return, and he will be in the presence of the Father. He will not look up. He will simply look to his side. They're seated beside the throne of the Father in heaven. And again, what is his request? That the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father. The way that he prays here is the way that he teaches his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. The foremost accent upon which is that the Father would be glorified. What was the purpose for which Jesus came into the world? That the Father would be glorified. What was the purpose for which Jesus did everything that he did in every moment of his life? Every waking minute, every thought, every word, every deed was all to one end to bring glory and honor to the Father. This is not simply the way that Jesus prayed. It's the way that he taught us to pray. His ultimate desire was that the Father would be glorified and that one day he would be glorified alongside the Father. He offers us a basis for which the Father might do this, that the Father might indeed glorify the Son when he uses the language of sense. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, this is the language of the Psalms, that the Father speaks to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Obey me, and I will bestow upon you that everlasting title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. Jesus said, but if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. 
Christ has glorified his father on the earth, and he's accomplished all the work that he was given to do. Just a remarkable, remarkable statement. When did the father give the son a job? Jesus worked. What work did he do? What is he saying here? But that before he came into the world, when he was in the presence of the Father, the Father gave the Son a mission, a commission, a job, a task that the Son would do. When the Son came into the world, everything that he did was in fulfillment of what the Father sent him to do. And even now in the sending of the Spirit, you see this beautiful union and communion between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Almost as though they had a plan before the world began. Why? Because they had a plan before the world began. And that's exactly what Jesus has been about. He is, on the one hand, the Son of God who has come down from heaven. As we read from one of the creeds earlier this morning in our morning worship service, there was never a time that the Son was not. He always existed, begotten, not made, eternal with the Father alongside the Spirit. And yet, as the Son of God, he came into this world, incarnate in flesh, as the Son of Man, with a particular purpose to do the work that the Father sent him to do, actively obeying all that the law required, thought, word, and deed, every single minute, every single second of his life. Enduring all that the law demanded by way of a sacrifice, a payment to satisfy the wages of sin, the work that Jesus came to do, the work that the Father sent Jesus to come and do, in many ways is what we see in the opening pages of the Bible. A man in a garden with a job, told to obey, and the promise of life and good fruit held out in front of him if he would obey And yet a curse for disobedience if he should sin and turn away from God. Whereas the first man failed his job, quit his job, botched his work, that first Adam that gave us death, Jesus here now praises one who has accomplished all that the first Adam failed to do, finishing the work that the Father sent him to do. And now as a result of his work, he gives to us life. Life. This is Jesus' self-understanding. He is the life giver. He is the curse reverser. He is one who has come not to continue to burden us with the bitter fruit of Adam's sin and Adam's fall and the wages of that sin, but rather now the sweet fruit, the everlasting fruit of the Spirit that comes as a result of the work that he has done. He is the Son of God, and He is the Son of Man, who now has eternal authority over all flesh given to Him by the Father. And this brings us to verse 13, excuse me, verse 3. One of my favorite verses. You're allowed to call it your favorite verse too. I will share it with you. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent He now talks about the quality of eternal life. Not the quantity. The quality. There's a big difference. The quantity is just saying it lasts forever. And that's fantastic. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything great. 
But the point of Jesus coming into the world, beloved, was not to give us longer life, but eternal life. And here he helps us to understand what the quality of that life really is. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is not living forever. Notice how he does not use that language. But rather, eternal life, according to Jesus, is knowing God. That is life, according to Jesus. That is the goal, the point of eternal life, according to Jesus, is to actually know the true and living God. And what does it mean to know? It's a great question. Is it simply an intellectual idea? Jehovah's Witnesses Bible mistranslates this verse based on their wrong theology about the doctrine of God. Their version reads like this, and this is eternal life that they may know about you, the only true God. See the difference? What is the difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them? Knowing here, as Jesus expresses it, is an intimate covenantal knowledge. The word first enters the Bible when it's described of Adam and Eve knowing one another, not uh, narrowly in the physical sense, but covenantally in an intimate, affectionate, and personal sense. Two beings, two persons capable of knowing one another, capable of communing with one another, capable of understanding one another, far more than just a head knowledge, an intellectual collection of facts, but rather a relationship based on covenantal intimacy. That's what Jesus is here describing. That eternal life is not simply stretching out the number of our days infinitively, but rather to be beloved in the presence of God and to know him as though that were the very purpose for which we were not only created, but the particular purpose for which we were redeemed. And then the Bible embodies this in so many different illustrations, covenantal illustrations. We know him as a father knows his children, and we've all been children. Some of us have had children. And you know that unique relationship between a father and a child, where a child doesn't simply know about their father, they know their father. And a father doesn't simply know about their children, they know their children. And that relationship is deep and intimate and affectionate. And if that illustration doesn't work, then there's a relationship between a husband and a wife who know things about one another that no one else on the entire planet knows as it should be. And yet that relationship is not foremost defined by a fleshly union, but by a spiritual union and communion that says in earthly relationships, till death do we part. But in this relationship, it never departs. It is to know the one who created us and is intimately aware of every detail of our being because every intimate detail of our being, he himself perfectly designed, carefully designed that he might know us for all eternity as he made us and as he redeemed us. This is no small or trivial thing. Jesus came into the world to give us eternal life. And that eternal life, according to him, is defined by knowing the one true, the living, and eternal God. Once again, it could be helpful to see what Jesus is saying here against the backdrop of the work of Moses. God's great concern for Israel was not not narrowly to get them out of Egypt and into Canaan. Their salvation, be with me here, 
was a means to an end, and the end of their salvation was foremost to glorify God, and second, that they might know the one true and living God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who not only creates, book of Genesis, but a God who redeems, the book of Exodus, and the God who continues with his people, Deuteronomy. That is the point. And here, the same point is being made. This is what Jesus is teaching his people, that he came into the world not simply to save us as though that were it, but rather that our salvation is a means to an end of knowing the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it clear that prior to coming into this world, he shared in the glory of the Father. And I admit, I don't fully understand what that means. I don't fully understand what anything means. But when he prays this way, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was the glory of Jesus like before the world existed? I mean, we're reaching pretty high. And we're fairly short people. And nonetheless, Jesus shared in the glory of the Father at a minimum. That means the absence of all the things in this world that sin has affected. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was no sin. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was no pain. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was no sickness. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was no death. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was no sense of bearing the curse. In the glorious presence of the Father, there was intimacy between the Father and the Son. And at that, we're still only scratching the surface. But not only does Jesus say that he shared in the glory of the Father, and he's finished the work that the Father gave him to do, he now asks that he might be returned back to that beautiful station, that he'd be glorified again. In many ways, you might think of the life of Jesus as something like a you. He began in glory. The eternal glory, the presence of his Father, before creation itself existed. And then he comes incarnate, all the way down to the point of the cross. And there he glorified the Father, and I'll return to this in a moment. Now what he asked is that the Father might again glorify him, that he would return to heaven itself, and that he would enjoy the glorious presence of the Father that he once had before the world itself existed. But I want to press on one point for a moment. And that is, how is it that Jesus is to be glorified? It might be tempting, and not entirely incorrect, to think that what Jesus is saying is, Father, glorify yourself, and glorify me by taking me back to heaven. As though the glory in view is something separate from the cross. And I think that would be wrong. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that even the cross itself is a means by which the Son of God has brought glory to Father God. So that for Jesus to ask of the Father to glorify the Son, he is not saying, give me something on the other side of the cross, or somehow take me around the cross, but glorify me even through the cross. And glorify yourself as I go to the cross, and I'm on the cross. And here's the point, every commentator, and I looked at quite a number on this one, see this the same way. 
that the glory in view here is not a glory to be considered apart from the cross, but rather in conjunction with it. Part of the Son's glorification happens by his going through the cross. Richard Gaffin, tired OPC minister, taught at Westminster, Philadelphia for a long time, uh, treats it exactly this way, that in order to properly understand the glory that the Son describes and the glory that is brought to the Father, we ought not to think apart from the cross, as though the cross is not a part of the plan to glorify the Son and the Father, but in many ways uh, the center of it. Let me say it differently. Jesus glorified the Father by going to the cross. And the Father glorified the Son, even in taking the Son to the point of the cross, so that even now, as the New Testament, this side of the resurrection looks back at the work of the Son at the cross, Jesus was glorified, even as he was crucified. The cross being part of that glorious means that would take him into death and then into heaven itself. Why is that important? How does a Christian glorify God? How do you glorify God? Let me say it differently. Do we only glorify God when we get to heaven? Or do we not glorify God now, even as we bear his cross? Even as we at times suffer in this present evil age, Why did Jesus teach these beautiful truths to his disciples? Because he knew what they did not. He was about to go, but he would send his Holy Spirit. He would return to that place of consummate glory in the presence of his Father. But he would have his church to understand that even by way of the cross, Jesus was glorified. And the church will continue to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as we bear the cross. I want to say a little bit more about the Holy Spirit Jesus is right now, as we speak, this moment, this second, as you breathe air, in the presence of the Father interceding for us. His Father hears him and accepts us for Jesus' sake. Jesus sent his Spirit to give us eternal life. And the Spirit indwells our hearts, assuring us that we have eternal life and that we will never lose eternal life. But throughout the Gospel of John, the gift of life is always attached to the work of the Spirit. To have eternal life, beloved, is to have the Spirit of God within you. This is exactly what Jesus was attempting to teach Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Life, eternal life, you must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. When our confession Talks, away, talks about the way that Christ continues to give his people life. It's by work, by way of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why as Reformed folk, if we call ourselves that, we not only believe in the Holy Spirit, we rejoice in the Holy Spirit, and we consider the Holy Spirit equal with the Father and the Son. One God in three persons And that triune God continues to bless us in the means of grace, assist us as we pray, causing us to persevere to the end, and even glorifies himself, not simply when we get done with our race or in heaven, but glorifies himself even now in the life of his people. Jesus said that the hour would come. 
There is a sense in which we might think that his work came to an end in that hour. There's another sense in which we ought to say that Christ's work, in many ways, really just got going. That work that he would continue to do on the other side of the cross, but now in glory, in the glorified presence of the Father in heaven. And what is Jesus continuing to do, beloved? He continues to send his spirit, that we would not be orphans in this world, and that we would know that we have eternal life. Jesus' farewell speech was given to comfort a church that would soon be troubled and not only find him physically gone, but his cross upon their shoulders. Do you find comfort in his words? Do you find meaning in your life? Not by looking for it in 90 songs, 2023 songs, passing, fading, earthly treasures, but in knowing the living and true God. If early we ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And is there any purpose to be found in it? And if every secular song seems to scream out what Camus believed, that life is absurd. There is no meaning. You might as well just get used to it. Let's all just jump in the mosh pit. Or you could believe what Jesus taught that there is meaning in life, that there is purpose in life, and that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, many of us have been catechized by the siren songs of this present evil age. They sing with beautiful voices, seeming to have the gift of poetry, and the skill set of fine music. And for many of us, those secular songs have unfortunately been the poetry of our souls, leading us, however, not into joy and comfort, but rather into unbelief, into darkness and despair. And so I pray, Lord, this evening, that if anyone is sitting here who is looking for purpose and meaning of life outside of Jesus Christ, Lord, show them that this truly is a dead-end road. And yet, Lord, for those who by faith have fled to Jesus and long to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in glory, we ask, Lord, that more and more you give us a sense of the finished work of our Savior, the one who came from glory, was glorified in his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and even now enjoys eternal glory in the presence of the Father. Lord, fix our eyes there. Help us to have great hope comfort, and even consolation in this world, that we shall live forever in your presence. But it is not the quantity of our days that matter, but rather the quality of our relationship with you. So having this eternal treasure, might it become more and more the apple of our eye, and the hymns and the psalms that we sing, might they truly be the poetry of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.